are listening to a podcast of The View, where we discuss today's topics from an anti-racist, anti-oppressive, multicultural perspective. This podcast is brought to you by the Church of the Larger Fellowship. To subscribe, visit questformeaning.org or search for Church of the Larger Fellowship in the iTunes Store. Good morning, it's Meg Riley in Minneapolis, Minnesota. We're excited to have the Commission on Institutional Change back with us today. And also we're excited to have a guest host. So I'm going to start with her. Julika, why don't you introduce yourself? Hello friends, I'm Julika Herman de la Fuente. I live just outside of Lansing in a little town called Williamston in Michigan. And I love this show. And I love being asked to be a guest host, and I'm excited to be here today. How are you, Michael? Good morning, everyone. This is Michael Tino uh, joining you from Peekskill, New York, and I am doing okay. It's um, it's going to be a ghastly hot day here, and there is absolutely nothing wrong in my life that is not in and of itself a mark of my privilege. So and <laughs> I'm just like, it's going to be hot. Like, I'm in a house. Like, that's get sun you know it's life is like that right now it's uh it's full of conundrums like that and i'm aware of it so i'm aware of that antonia how are you this morning my morning is going well i believe it will also be hot here in wilmington delaware i am i am and that's a beautiful thing i am and hopefully we'll continue to be in this world destined to kill me. Okay, I'll be on behind the chalice today. I'll be taking your questions for the Commission on Institutional Change. If you've been with us, this series, series has been so enlightening and I'm excited to have them back to talk about the topic that they're discussing today. And um, leave your questions in the YouTube chat and I will get them to the Commission. Thank you for being here with us. Back to you, Michael. Well, Commission, you know, you, every week your work feels more important to me. Um, COVID, we've talked about the very, very disparate impact. And now in places like my hometown here, um, COVID has not even been something that's risen to most of our minds in the last week or so. Um, as amazing activists do incredible work here, and I just I just want to lift up all of the things that have been accomplished with systemic change in Minneapolis this week. The schools have kicked the police out. No more police in the schools. The University of Minnesota has suspended its contract with the police. The park board is now looking to suspend its, its contract with police. And the state is suing the city of Minneapolis, the civil rights department of the state. So we're looking at institutional change to begin to address the crises that have led to the last week. I also just need to say, uh, because the meme that uh, Minneapolis is Ferguson plus Charlottesville is accurate, that as far as I can tell, the white supremacists are no longer flaunting their presence here. We're not seeing, um, we've just seen hundreds and hundreds of cars with no license plates driving around some of them randomly shooting at people of color uh, those of us who are here are convinced that 
those the people who have set fire to many of the businesses which are owned by immigrants and black people um, and the police who are <laughs> at least 70% of them voted for a white supremacist um, police union chief. So, you know, the white supremacists are both inside and outside of the police here. So I just, I name all that because I think the institutions that make up a city and the institutions that make up a religious association are not all that different. There are all these ways that people um, support white supremacy culture. And um, some of them are overtly violent and some of them are just painful. So I know that you all did like, I think literally a thousand hours of interviews to, to move to the conclusions that you drew. Um, and I just wonder as you look at this larger picture, how you see the work today. And sir, do you wanna start or Leslie or? I'd like to ask Sir to start if Sir is in a position to do so. Yeah. Um, you know, honestly, I'm thinking about progressive stack, and I think it's important to check in with Natalie, with Reverend Natalie, and see if she would like to speak first. Well, um, I think that we need to go back to the beginning with the commission and our commitment to base all of our efforts in our theology. That this is a moment that we need to reaffirm our theological commitment to the liberation of all people. And if we, you know, uh, I went to a, a Methodist seminary and um, there was a lot of conversation about, you know, different political views that came out of different interpretations of the Bible. And I had a professor who was very clear. He said, determine what's the core of your belief. If you believe that Jesus taught you to love your neighbor, to do righteousness, to walk in the ways of justice, to put love above all else, then you have to read all of your theological scripture through that and put everything else to the side. You know, so I think for us as Unitarian Universalists, if we are saying that we are a people of justice, of liberation, of peace and love, then we have to read all of our actions through that and prioritize that. And the commission's work was about prioritizing that and hearing the stories and lifting up the voices of people who should be at the center of our thinking, of our movement, of our concern. And, um, and we continue with that as our intention through this time and all time, because we have to be clear that this is a moment in a long line of moments before and after. So I wanted to um, sort of echo what I heard um, at my ordination, I chose as the opening words, the poem Celebrate from Lucille Clifton. And a line in that is, um, please celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has not succeeded. And I 
invited those present and I continue to invite people to help, um, help that to be true, that it has not succeeded, that, that I have been killed, that people have been killed, to join in that, to be part of that, to celebrate that, to work for that. And I, you know, the work of the commission is one part of that. Well, yes, that is, uh, that's to me, that says pretty much everything. The thing that has been echoing in my mind is how those of us who came back from Ferguson six years ago, we went through so many of the same things that I'm seeing right now. Uh, I remember coming back and telling people about the cordons around Canfield apartments and how we had to work with apartment managers to deliver pharmaceuticals, water, food to the elderly people who were trapped in there by police. The police had felled a tree in front of one neighborhood and just dragged whatever concrete blocks, whatever debris they could to black people off. And I got a picture from Cleveland, which is about 45 minutes away from me, of the same concrete blocks. And, you know, this morning I'm holding that Akron had a near ra uh, racist killing where a white man followed and threatened a young black man who was waiting uh, at the police or waiting at the bus stop, excuse me, waiting at the uh, bus stop. And this man waiting for to go to work and this guy followed him around with a shotgun in his car. I'm holding also that we are experiencing our own cycle of protests. We're experiencing our own infiltration of white supremacist groups with stickers popping up in our art section with black leaders being blocked from protest pages that are sponsored by people we know nothing of, have never heard of. There's a lot going on. And I've gotten these questions about, well, what do we want? What are the demands? And, oh, well, there was, there was an arrest. And, oh, well, there were elevated charges. Oh, and the one that gets to me the most is, well, how do I, as a white person, really benefit from systemic oppression and racism? And, you know, I thought this morning, white people have had their foot on our neck for so long, it's fallen asleep. There are so many things written in our report that I think about over and over. And one thing is I would like to see white people and institutions devote the same amount of determination, aggression, mass coordination, propaganda, indoctrination to dismantle and destroy their corrupt evil systems 
as they have used to destroy our institutions, to deliver ecocide to this planet, and to all that ensure that me, my family, everyone who looks like me will die from it. And as a person who has been through this with Ferguson, I've been thinking, so if the same cycle happens, you know, I just saw where Democrats voted to accept the new Patriot Act yesterday. So if this continues to happen, what should I think my future will be? What, what should I do? What would the white community do if they, if they face impending destruction and death? 20,000 people are dead from COVID. I kept hearing and seeing reports about NYC looting and things like that. And Macy's got, got broken into. And I just thought, how many of those children have elders, friends, family who are dead from COVID right now. As Natalie pointed out, we are protesting, we are working for our liberation because of ongoing systemic oppression. That is why this is happening. It will not stop. I don't care if one family says they forgive because this is about all of our families. That's for their own hearts. We have to hold that, that this reform we're hearing about, this backing off, this turning away must not happen. It must not happen again. And when we talk about how our institutions need to change, it needs to be transformational. It needs to be radical. Radical, all that means is looking at your situation and being willing to change your culture, your ideas, your direction. All revolutionary means is being willing to dismantle a system and recreate another one. That's what our real anti-racist organizations need to be. And as Reverend Natalie pointed out, we need to live up to who we are. I hear so much about Spooner and Parker and Reeb. I'd like to see some of the UUs that I know live up to those names the same way that I'm living up to my ancestors and these children out in the streets are living up to ours. And I invite Dr. Elias Thank you. Thank you, Natalie and Spur, for those words. Um, I think what, what I would like to add to this to this work is, is perhaps um, something in a little bit in a, in a personal note. And, and this is a way in which I have started having some of these conversations with our white allies. Um, and, and I think that there is something that becomes rather performative um, when we talk about racial justice and we talk about uh, moments of, of uprising. Like, like we see now, and folks um, intent to move into a space, uh, what I like to call parachuting into a space, 
for a time being and not think about the long-term durations of what the consequences um, are. So um, what I like to do in, in this moment is that's a conversation on with, with my children right? and ask the folks, what would they do for the well-being of my children? How would they defend it? Um, and then from there, I proceed to asking, you know, uh, if you think that I, I am, you know, as a parent, necessary and, a, and an integral part of the welfare of my children, what would you do to protect me so that I can uh, ensure the welfare of my children? And, and as you can imagine, right, that conversation then takes a different turn and a, and a different tone. And then from there, I on, I kind of push a little further. And it's like, you know, the reason I asked both that question is because if you were to risk today to protect my life, right, onto the system change, somebody else will have to do it again tomorrow, right? And the day after tomorrow, right? Because the system itself has not changed, right? So it is not personal, uh, it is it is systemic. So I think for for us to, to think about this uh, moment, not only as a current uprising, but also the layers, that this that this take um, for us to break the cycle. This is intergenerational work. Uh, this is generational trauma that we're seeing. This is not something that happened uh, because of a moment of, of anger and arrest in the moment. This is generational of centuries right, of oppression coming through and justice always being delayed. Right, we have to wait just a little longer until the time when we can uh, claim justice. Or um, I think one one of the things that, that I want to also bring up to remind folks is that it is very easy at this particular moment for us to go back into the past and look into other administrations and say they have done it better. For example, the Obama administration. And that is not necessarily the case. Uh, but there were moments uh, in which Obama also asked uh, for us to put first and foremost uh, a particular vision of law and order that was detrimental right, for the community. And let's not remember that he has deep experience with the Chicago police. Uh, right, So he, he knew uh, over Emmanuel and others because he was in the state and politics. Um, and I think for, for me, I want to say that because I don't want us to romanticize the moment, right? I think of what other, what other administrations could have done or would be doing right now, but to really think of the ways in which we can impact uh, the current system that we have today so that tomorrow will be different. Uh, what are the alternatives that will be present? Thank you. Thank you, Elias. I'd like to jump on that after that. Um, the thing that I would like to add is, so I'm going to leave this meeting and go into a meeting with one of the many police jurisdictions in the county that I serve. I serve a county of a million people. Um, in that county, I served on the county's racial justice task force for two years. We, one of the things we discovered was that there are over 20 entities that control policing in our county. And so when you have that, when we talk about reform, reform is an endless process. And that's a real parallel to something that we talked about in the, in the commission's report, um, because we talked about the fact that, you know, it is really hard to make change when every single entity has all its in enshrined rules and procedures that, that are all stops to there being progress. And we've heard on the national level how the police chiefs can come in and even wanna make reform, but the unions can stop the reform from happening. There are all these institutional levels that keep 
basic values from being exercised. I think it's really important to recognize that when we talk about systemic change and we talk about the governance aspect, which is something we talk about in our report, we're not talking about when we say that we need to, to look at and streamline how we are organized. We have a lot of embedded procedures that, that just because of their structure, they resist change in the same way that we're seeing around these structures. So I'll go from that meeting with the Concord police about the man that they threw into the streets in the middle of the pandemic, taking his shelter in his home to organizing a demonstration against our county sheriff who decided to tear gas and use rubber bullets against young people in two of our suburban cities in the last two days, one of whom is a member of the congregation I serve and she was on the front page of the San Francisco Chronicle with her bloodied face um, two days ago. And I just, I want us to think about how it is that, you know, what's really remarkable is that we see these movements um, you know, and there is fear about what pr protests are legitimate and which protests are not. But we also see the legitimate protests being led in a very different way by young people who have a very different, um, non-authoritative, collaborative way of leading. And um, we don't have to equate, you know, getting down to a, a better, more simplified, more faith or values-based way of being with, um, you know, with some kind of authoritarianism and in Unitarian Universalism so often when we start to talk about structures, everyone says, you're taking away all the checks and balances. I think I've come to really realize in this process and then through these last couple months that those checks and balances are really checks and balances for the status quo, for the centralization of power in one very particular part of our culture. And I think we have to really think about how we are accountable to our deepest values. I've been told by the, any number of police entities in the place where I serve that the purpose of the police is to protect property and not people, that property is the reason that we have policing. I don't think that's the reason that it, anyway, there's a long history of that as we know in our nation. And it, it was in some ways true from the very beginning, but that they're able to now say that in such an explicit way, I think is something we need to take note of. And the parallel for Unitarian Universalism is how many of our congregations make decisions and will make decisions in these coming months about assets at a time when we are gonna be deciding whether or not we give livelihood to people, how many of them are gonna privilege the protection of property over the protection of people, their well-being, their jobs, and their livelihood. And so I think there are a lot of things that we have to look at and not just in the moment, but systemically to look at what systems reinforce this kind of inequity and this kind of violence against people's very beings. I'm gonna ask Mary if she has anything to add. Yeah, I wanna go back to the first thing Natalie said about the beginning of our work, which was to lift up, to lift up the voices that we don't hear and to know that we cannot turn away. We cannot not listen again. The real, one of the things we learned in our work was the episodic nature of engagement with really getting to the kind of systemic change that Unitarian Universalism needs in order to be the liberatory faith for everyone. 
and that we start and stop and start and stop and we cannot stop again. Um, you know, Elias talked about the systemic nature of it, but there also is a personal aspect of it. And that is our personal commitment. Each one of us needs to make that personal commitment to dismantling these systems and understanding what kind of action can I take every day that can make a difference, even if it's a small one, if every person does their small piece of it, we can make these changes that really need to happen. So don't turn away. Yeah, can I add, I think that, you know, in our, our denominational associational history, we have had these moments when we have decided that we need to be a sanctuary. And I think that we're asking, can Unitarian Universalism be a sanctuary for black lives? How do we structure ourselves to be that place that is providing the sustenance, the nourishment, the support, the, you know, the physical safety that people need. If, if that's our, if we have been able to, to make that faith commitment at other times for other people, we need to understand that we can make that commitment to be a sanctuary for black lives. And as Leslie said, that means giving space, giving money, giving support, education, worship, being that center, and how many of our congregations can see themselves doing that and then modeling that for the communities in which they exist. We have a couple good comments. One of these, uh, I think, is really a theological question. So while we're, while we're beginning the conversation, and Didi Achibi asked, in my opinion, oh wait, I've always had difficulty understanding how my liberation depended on the liberation of all, especially when we're speaking about folks who are not Black, Indigenous, people of color. Um, can you say more about, because Natalie, I loved your, your launch with the theology, and or sir? Yeah, uh, this is one of my favorite questions I've been able, that I've been asked in this work is what does Black liberation, what's the context of that I draw from, uh, from my definition of black liberation. And I would say I'm drawing it from our, our movement history, Black Panther Party for self-defense. Um, before that, Queen Mother Moore, Marcus Garvey, uh, Ida V. Wells, Fannie Lou Hamer, all socialist thinkers, all folks who understood that this was a global system. Um, and that's really shaped me. To me, liberation means the dismantling of all of these systems, institutions, and infrastructures of oppression, capitalism, ecocide, and imperialism, coupled with Africans across the globe, securing direct communal control of all of the resources and institutions needed for preservation and development of our people in the world's ecosystems. Because no empire has ever existed on this planet, especially in our modern era, I should say, without the breadbasket that is Africa, without drawing mineral resources out of that space. We see that in globalism now, we see it uh, with the very, very nuanced conversation around uh, Chinese uh, influence in Africa. We see it in the dependence 
of black labor uh, that the, uh, you know, a, a organizer who lives here in Ohio has a saying that America is addicted to free labor. We have to have a slavery populace to create this system, to ensure that we have the police uniforms, the tear gas canisters, the, uh, the processing, you know, that all comes from prison. I really hope folks would realize that all police, most police uniforms, many are made in prison. Our labor keeps this system running. Our subjugation keeps it running. So it's not, when I say it, I don't, I'm not saying it as a plea for folks to uh, kind of recenter the conversation away from black oppression and onto how they can free themselves. I'm just pointing out that this is a global system of white domination, white violence, and it must be stopped if any of us are to live. I just want to respond also to Nadidi's comments um, and the second comment after the one that Meg just referenced. Um, there's, uh, in my opinion, many of them are already free or else I would need to wait until they liberate themselves before I will be free. And if the latter is true, I fear I will never ever be. And I think that um, there's some deep wisdom in that. You know, there are things that people of color have had to track, especially black people, that because they just affect their everyday. And one thing that we've been really aware of, for example, is the militarization of the police forces. That's been very clear for to people very for a very long time, and yet people haven't been listening to it until, you know, young people. We're having a bit of a James Reed moment, I'm afraid, where, you know, where when young white activists are out and getting attacked through with riot gear and rubber bullets and tear gas and we're going to see a different reaction and i think it's really important for us to figure out um, how we're going to respond from a systemic way because i think those things are out there and people have been saying this for a very long time they've been saying that these these um systems are corrupt unworkable they don't defend the public good, and um, now we really see that so clearly. And the question is, systemically, what do we do, even if it's uncomfortable? You know, and that's the other thing I want to throw into the mix is this issue around comfort. Um, and I want to bring it really close to home. Um, the number of people that are saying, for example, even though we have a general assembly that is the most accessible it could possibly be, because you can do it from wherever we're sitting right now, right? Um, um, people are saying, I don't have the emotional bandwidth to be part of a conversation where there's going to be anger, where people are going to get emotional, where there's going to be hard things discussed. I just can't do it. And um, this is a moment where we have to really say, what is it that we're about? Um, because if we can't do that, that really fairly safe and simple act right now when we have to make very serious responses as an institution, um, then I think we have a very big problem. Can I um, add to that, Leslie? I think that part of that resistance 
uh, that you're talking about. We are heir to a faith tradition that has often um, privileged um, a fake rationalism, an idea that we are above uh, our emotional selves, that we can somehow separate the mind and the body, the heart to the soul and the mind, you know, sort of a ridiculous um, so pseudo-intellectualism that, that denies um, actually the, what people of color can bring to our faith, which is a more holistic view about the human being um, and a wholeness of yourself. That, that is something that we tend to bring from our cultural and faith backgrounds. So I think we have to be really direct and ask our Unitarian Universalists now, especially uh, white upper-class Unitarian Universalists who are used to being in control that you've lost control, that the world closed down on you and you can't do things the way you used to do and you're locked in your house and it's driving you crazy, right? Just, and cry, grieve what was, give ourselves the space for that. That's not a, um, an illegitimate place to be, to be in pain and sorrow for what was. Go ahead and do that and then move on to the future. Because there, you know, I, I acknowledge, I think we all do, there are places where especially white, middle-class, heterosexual um, men with lots of degrees and all of that and great jobs um, are sitting in fear for the world that is not their world, that it's not playing out the way, this year started one way and it took like <laughs> there. And that, that hurts their hearts. I, I'm not denying that. That is a human cry, mourn, grieve, you know, get, you know, do the old thing, get on your knees if you got to. Um, and then gather the resources of your faith and your commitment to a better future and join with everybody else in making that so. Right. But I do believe we have to just say that to people, you know, cry. I'm sorry. Cry. It's not going to be what it was. It should not be what it was. Right. I hope you can now see clearly. That should never have been what it was, but I understand that what it was benefited you, gave you a place in the world, and now you have to give it up. And that is difficult. But if we believe that we actually have a faith that can hold that pain and move people forward through it, we have to actually believe in that and do that and not, as Mary says, stop. Because people have touched that pain, so now we need to back off. We need to have enough faith in ourselves that we can move through the pain because, you know, I think the streets have shown that that pain is actually perhaps not that great <laughs> considering, you know, is, is somebody's knee on your neck or not? Measure your pain by that and then move on. Preach, Preach. Natalie. 
You know, I mean, I think if we can bring it home for a few minutes here, I think it's important for us to recognize that when we talk about systemic change, it's not just one thing, it's a series of changes. And I'd like us to just very quickly um, go to the slide, if we could, Marcus, about reparations within Unitarian Universalism for a second, because I think it brings it home in a, in a specific way. Um, and sir, I'm wondering if you could just take us through this slide really quickly. So one of the key things around reparations and restoration is that for one, we need cessation. We have to have an end to the violence. We have to have the end to, an end to the violence of institutions. Yet there also needs to be uh, divestment and most importantly, investment. We need to change how our budgets work. Um, Reverend Kim Hampton speaks about how, uh, she says budgets are moral documents. They reflect our values. So as an act of reparations, we believe funding and administrative support for groups that allow black indigenous people of color, that allow uh, other marginalized groups to convene need to be supported um, both by the congregations yet also by the UUA. Uh, many times those organizations really struggle because the huge kind of overwhelming pressure that racism brings to us makes it to where it's hard to run uh, five jobs in your organization at once when you know you don't have a project manager you don't have you know bless Marcus our our great project manager because they have really shown me how organizations can work how people really can be supported in work that they need to do. Um, we need that, that same kind of support for all of our organizations. Methods for encouraging and channeling productive conflict should be established and promoted to decrease harm. And I'll say that this, I'll say this very clearly, people of color, black people, marginalized folks have been suffering within our institution for a long time. And white folks need to begin to change their culture around how that is addressed. When we say productive, that means past a statement, that means past just an apology. Uh, it's important to remember what the definition of reparations is. It means restoring a people to their original state. So when we're talking about a conflict or something that's happened, we need to understand or harm that's been done. We need to understand that the goal should be to move to something that both changes the both changes and ends the, the aggression happening and really makes it better for the person who was harmed. Uh, the channels and procedures for identifying harm, making amends, financial rep reparations should be established. We need folks who are skilled and qualified to check on a church's, an organization, a congregation's budget and say, where are ways where the income gap shows up here? Where are ways where black and people of color, marginalized folks are not getting healthcare, are not getting the things they need, the support they need to do the work that we ask them to do. 
And then as Brother Natalie pointed out at the very beginning, we need widespread practices of acknowledging our own history and studying our own history. You know, there's a thing going around right now that I'm sure a lot of white anti-racist UUs have seen or experienced where they've asked a black person on their thread, well, or sent them a message, well, what can I do? The answer is Google's your friend. The research is there. If you have time to talk to me and go back over my feed and do your own work. Next slide, please. So this report and our work, it cannot end here. I think that much uh, is, is so obvious, hopefully to all, that this is generational work that needs to continue. The same way that the oppression has taken this much time, the restoration must take this much time. These, uh, these things are meant to be developed um, innovation and that in implementation, it does lie primarily in the hands of the institution, as has been pointed out. It needs that we need the same energy that was used to set up the structure to dismantle it. And I think that it's really important to think about this level of systemic change and how we build this into our ongoing work as Unitarian Universalists, because it's going to be really important to recognize we are very good at doing the moment. We are very good at doing the moment. We are not good at doing the movement. We are not good at doing the systemic work that we have to do to make each of these moments not happen. Um, and, you know, I've had so many, I think so many of us have been saying for so long that there is a level of anger and despair among people that cannot be suppressed. And we're now seeing that level of anger um, and despair. And as Natalie said, Reverend Dr. Natalie in her amazing way said, you know, there is a need for lamentation. And we're seeing lamentation on the streets. And for too many people, all that is, is, you know, destruction of property. And we have to look at our hearts and see what that means, because it's, it's really an expression of a deep, deep sorrow that we've been unable to see people's basic humanity and protect it. May I, Kiana Perkins asked a while ago. Can I add something? Oh, sure. No, the, the thing that I wanted to add um, is in the, in the commission's um, questions will remember this, that during our initial conversations with the stakeholders, uh, a topic that kept coming up is the, the need to find ways to um, reappropriate or reinterpret what the language of, of sin, repentance and lamentation can mean for Unitarian Universalists because uh, uh, the, the concern is, and I think is, is on point, uh, has been that as a faith community, without having that language of, of 
of things that we have failed to do and live to our, our highest aspirations, right? That we have failed to be the community that we claim to be or want to be. And without the, the lamentation of rights and, and rituals to uh, help us call us back right, into that sacred community, um, we are not going to be able to do that work, right? That work of, of restoration, the work of preparation. Um, because we are, we're always going to be a step behind without having the necessary transformation, right, of the heart and the mind that will be required to make it possible. I just wanted to lift that up. So Kiana Perkins asked a while ago how to take the lessons of the uprising and bring them into our congregations. What are some UUA steps and some local brick and mortar steps? I'm curious if people have a response to that, because I think that's what you're talking about, as I hear it. I'll let others chime in, but I mean, the piece about reparations is real. We need to not be afraid to talk about that. There are, you know, our institutions were built on the same labor that um, Sir mentioned earlier. Um, we still live in with wealth that was collected through ways that dehumanized people. And we need to look at those issues. We need to look at how we create the conditions in which all people can thrive among us. And that's really important to, um, to look at. And I think it's also important um, to think about, we have a section in the report we talked about a couple times ago, but I, just, I do wanna, I do feel very compelled to say this one thing, and that is about living our values. Living our values is not monitoring the Facebook or, reading the right articles in the Atlantic or whatever. It is actually going, doing the things that make a difference. If you can't be in the streets right now, and I know there's serious issues around the transmission of the virus that I know Sir and I and others have been talking about that we're very concerned about around that piece as well. But the, but the piece is that you know, every single person can write their representatives about the demilitarization of the police. You know, every single person can take action about asking for accountability on an ongoing way that's real. There are things that we can do. And similarly, you know, we can do those same things. Ongoing accountability in our systems is critical. I think one of the things that uh, has come up for me as we've been talking about this is one of the hallmarks of white supremacy is conflict avoidance. And so much of this need for comfort and wanting to turn away from um, the conflict that change is gonna bring. And so um, doing the work to make sure that your congregation can engage in healthy conflict, um, I think is one of the most important things that can happen now because um, all of the changes that are gonna be required are gonna raise up those issues and being able to deal with everybody's points of view in healthy and productive ways is gonna be critical to making the changes that we need to make. Yeah, you know, the, well, first I would, before I forget, I'd like to, I saw an article in slate.com that where the University of, uh, this would be, this is bad radio, so I apologize, I apologize for that. A group of infectious disease experts at the University of Washington have put out a statement an open letter saying that the protests against systemic racism, which fosters a disproportionate burden of COVID-19 on black communities and also perpetuates police violence must be supported. Uh, I think that that is very crucial 
this is a time when if we if we turn back and i'll say this i can only say for myself yet i hear it in the words and and see it in the actions that i'm privileged to see it here that if we turn back this generation feels there is no future so the question of well, what can we do locally in our congregations and especially what can we do as an institution i think that was the first question uh, our report is is very thorough i'll take this opportunity though though to to say a wish list and some of this wish list is spurred on by the beautiful press release that was sent out from the UUA, stop calling the police and start eradicating anti-blackness. If institutions wanna make a change, they need to consider immediately eliminating the income gap by equalizing all pay, providing economic stimulus directly to the black community, beginning with groups that engage in radical intersectional revolutionary black community development. Eliminate all debt for black people within your own institutions. Provide free health care and access for black people in the midst of this pandemic. Assist and support black media production and insurance. We want investment or nothing. I'm so tired of seeing performative posts and signs and black boxes. Some of these things from institutions in my own city that I know have brutally treated black people, had extremely inequitable budgets and payrolls and practices, and it needs to end. So that would be one of my messages to the folks who are especially wondering what they can do as you use. Look where you work. If you're gonna make a post, consider making it from your own organization and consider making public what your role in systemic oppression has been, how you have collectively benefited from it, and what you're going to do immediately to stop it. That would be helpful. Yes, I think that, you know, um, I'm here in New York, and in many neighborhoods at seven o'clock, people go out and they bang their pots and pans in support of the essential workers and the healthcare workers. If people can organize to turn that into actual money for those people, health insurance for those people, better working conditions for those people, if they are just gonna call their employers to account for how they have treated them to this moment. You know, if you decide you don't wanna shop or buy things after you have seen the way that workers are treated in those places, disproportionately people of color who have been asked to be the frontline folks in the midst of the pandemic. I think there are ways in which we can organize to create change from the ground up. You can support small businesses. You can go out and help to rebuild some of these small businesses, Black-owned, immigrant-owned businesses that have been burned and looted. You can decide to shop there with those people and not at some other corporations that perhaps are putting up Black Lives Banners now, but are not doing the work. So you can be on the ground in ways that, uh, that you use as individuals and as congregations can support 
those actual on the ground community um, related people to make a difference there. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going out in a, a car caravan protest, you know, because I'm in a very high infection area and I cannot support putting people out where they're going to take that risk uh, when knowing that um, a black person who goes to the hospital is two or three times more likely to die. Right, I'm all about, I want black folks to live. So I'm trying to find ways that they can both protest and live. They can move forward and live. So, um, so there is, you know, letter writing, calling, car caravanning, um, supporting businesses and organizations and individuals who are struggling this time, um, developing mutual aid societies. Uh, our congregations could be central to that. We have resources. We just need to decide how to use them more equitably. And this is a time to try, you know, to be a community of practice and just start somewhere and get better. But as, as Mary says, don't back up. Because I actually do not believe we are conflict adverse. I've seen people fight like cats and dogs to the last <laughs> breath to keep things the way they are. I've seen that. We've been at GA, we've seen that. Pro-con Mike, SmackDown. So we can't say we're not, we can't fight. We just need to learn to fight for the right thing. You know. And I want to pick up that piece about equitable that both Sir and Natalie have mentioned. You know, one of the decisions congregations are going to be making in the next couple months is who do we keep on staff and who do we let go? And you know, I've made, taken a position in our congregation that our goal needs to be to preserve jobs, not salaries. And um, I have had people say to me, how, what are we saying as a board if we cut your salary? Because if we cut your salary, I'm the lead minister in my, my congregation, so I'm the highest paid person. I've taken, this will be my third salary cut July 1st. And they say, if we cut your salary, then how will anyone respect you? And I said, if that is the reason why I'm respected, then we have a much bigger problem. I want to go back to the piece that Aaliyah said. That's a really critical decision we're making because we know from our work, those interviews, that the data we looked at, that the vast majority of people of color in our association are not in the lead minister position, folks. They're in some other position, often uh, a support position of some sort, a part-time support position. So are we protecting? Are we doing what we usually do, which is eliminate those positions first? That's a very practical thing we're going to have to do. And it's very important to look at that as part of this work. Um, and the other thing I want to go back to is what Aaliyah said about sin. You know, sin is an archery term. It means to miss the mark. And how do we begin a culture where we don't just, you know, chess beat for drama, you know, just to, to do that, that kind of posturing that, that Sir was talking about, but how do we actually acknowledge to counter that perfectionist culture that's part of white supremacy? And we actually say, these are the things we've been got, getting wrong and now it's time to get them right and do something different. 
And I've been thinking, we're, we always talk about how we believe in ongoing revelation. And this is a time of revelation for many. And um, not for people of color who, as people have been saying, have been saying the same thing literally for hundreds of years. But, but um, for those of us who are white, there is an opportunity to be part of that living tradition we love to talk about of ongoing revelation. And we're all in a new world. We're all looking out at a world we've never been in. And I just wanted to mention that my old boss, Mel Hoover, called yesterday and we talked for about an hour. And, you know, I love it when the elders weigh in and he said, this is a moment. I can see it. This is an organizing moment, you know, and and my and my 23 year old said, hey, I can see abolition. We've been talking about it, but now I can see it, you know, and I thought this is why the young ones and the elders are so important. You know, they can they can see things and. Anyway, we're coming to the top of our hour. It's been wonderful to have you here. I want to give you a chance to say anything you didn't get to say, and I'm so glad you'll be back one more time. The only thing I want to add is that our report is pu being published. Uh, it is being published in a manner that will allow people to, when they order a physical copy of it, which we hope people will, um, that they'll also get a a PDF version of it so that they can see it before General Assembly since we won't actually be in a situation where people can walk into a into an um, exhibit hall and purchase it but it is going to be out there in the next couple of weeks we ask you to get the report and to read it actually when we're back with you the last time some people may actually have read the report which will be a whole different frame for us for um, we do really hope that that will happen every congregation will be getting a physical copy over the summer um, and I just want to say that every single time so if people say I have no access to the report we're saying, no, you really do. I've gotten a sneak preview and it is amazing. Thank you for your work. It's really, as Sir said, comprehensive. Sir, you wanted to say something? Yeah, I'll say one more thing. Um, just as a note uh, on the current events, we're seeing a lot of posts of people kneeling with police officers and things like that. And many white folks are lifting that up. I just want to say it's very important that we change this culture around how we view policing and how white folks view police as heroes. That needs to change. There's a reason we say fuck all the police. Whole damn system is guilty as hell. Thank you so much. Next week we will have you, you, the vote, and we'll see you then. of The View. If you would like to learn more about the CLF, visit questformeaning.org.